Exit for Podcast Mutants, Magic, and Marvels is brought to you by the Cage Club Network. So for all things media, check out cageclub.me. That's cageclub.me. And for all things X's for Podcast, check out X's for Podcast on Twitter and YouTube. Hey everybody, welcome back to another all-new X's for Podcast, a show where we take a look at comics, mutants, magic, and marvels week after week through their many monthly titles. I'm Nico, and you guys can find me on Twitter and Instagram at NicoAction. That's N-I-C-O-A-C-T-I-O-N. It's another Magic Monday here on X, where we take a look at the mystic corner of the Marvel Universe. We're going to kick things off with Defenders number 5, the series finale, before turning our attention to some of Kushala's most recent adventures. For those not in the know, Kushala is the spirit writer. She's part ghost writer, part sorcerer. Sorcerer Supreme, first introduced in the pages of Doctor Strange and the Sorcerer Supreme, and she has absolutely become one of our team's favorite characters in the last few months, and we could not be more excited to cover a number of her stories. But first up, we're going to take a look at the final issue of Defenders and say goodbye to both the cast and creative team that our entire crew has come to love, and we hope you guys enjoy our farewell to this title. And if you guys like what you hear, you might even like what you see. So don't forget to follow us over on Twitter at Podcast. Hey everybody, welcome to another exciting segment of Exit for Podcast, where we talk about mutants, Marvel, and magic, like in the book we're covering right now, week after week. I'm Nathan, you can find me online at DesireeOA on Twitter and Instagram. I'm Kyle, you can find me on Twitter and Instagram at Drantis82, that's D-R-A-N-T-I-S-8-2. Hey, this is Jonah. You can follow me over on Twitter and Instagram at Peak Jonah. That's P-E-A-K. And hello, I'm Steve. It's me. And you can find me on Twitter at Howdy Duda. That's H-O-W-D-Y-D-U-D-A. And we've got front row seats, friends, for the cosmic Donnybrook that began them all. Yes! So we've got magic. We've got different cosmos. We've got the Defenders. And I guess that means we're talking about the Defenders finale number five. So I'm so sad to see this book go like i cannot wait for the tease defenders will return because fuck yeah sign me up before we jump into the story defenders number five was brought to us by al ewing and javier rodriguez as our storytellers our letterer is species joe carmagna cover was by javier rodriguez i love how in this story the artist is credited as a storyteller because especially in this story the art is such a huge part of the story you know before we get into our favorite parts of defenders the series this issue itself like tell me what is your relationship with the art in this series i think um like it the artist is always a major component of the storytelling, if not the most major component of the storytelling in a comic book. But I feel like that's more true than ever for Javier Rodriguez's comics. I Agreed. was so incredibly impressed with the work on Doctor Strange and the Sorcerer's Supreme. I often think of that book as the Javier Rodriguez book. This does the same thing where like the, the story is, I, w- I would say equally told by Javier Rodriguez and Al Ewing on this one, but it is such a fundamental and necessary component that I can't actually imagine the story having been told by somebody else. I can think of other people who might have replicated 
a style that would evoke this. I can think of other people who might have worked in background details that are key to the the thematic development of the of the story. And I can think of other people who might have done crazy layouts that, you know, attract your eye across the page. But I have trouble imagining somebody who could have done all of these in this way, the way that it needed to be told. Yeah, the series, it has just been absolutely an amazing look at different styles of storytelling through art. And each issue has really made me want to zoom in on all these different pages. And it's it's something that I don't always do when I'm reading comics. But this one, there's so many interesting details, so many references to different styles and it's incredibly fascinating what they've done with this book. This art has me on a leash and is walking <laughs> around and basically <laughs> controls my life because everything about this art is correct from the different pages to convey different stylings to use that to tell the readers what they're trying to talk about to the uh, colors used in different scenarios where it's this high saturation, highly detailed parts or it's their pages where characters are literally in one color and it looks correct everything about this art truly helps bring this story to life because this is a very weird story this is a story that i will probably have to go back and read maybe once or twice more to like fully understand and get the nuances of everything that the our storytellers were trying to tell us but the art itself is so weird and gorgeous and right and wrong at the all at the same time and it's a really interesting combination that they were able to convey these kinds of artistic ideas ideas uh, through this medium that I was really fascinated with of how the art truly almost carried the story for this miniseries. The art definitely enhanced it from the very deliberate choices they made in the color saturation to the fact that like each of the cosmos was so beautifully played in such a very cool and unique different way like that you didn't really have anything that you were like oh well the third cosmos looks exactly like the fifth cosmos like no it was everything was so deliberately thought out and hit so well with the story that they were telling that like yes you can tell both of them really had a really big strong input in it of course it's an Al Ewing story because it uses characters in, in Al Ewing standard type of storytelling but like Javier Rodriguez obviously played such a huge part in the just the progression of the story that you're like holy shit yes I love that they're that he's credited as a storyteller more so than just as an artist because it's really 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 what they're doing in the story so now, Steve, I know you've been on this ride with me for all the Defenders, and I know Kyle and Jonah, you guys have been read it, and maybe not on as much coverage as it. So I got to ask overall, like, what has your opinion of the series as a whole been as we're wrapping up? I think it's very easy for me to say that this was the best big two comic that I read in the last nine months. Just it was. Possibly of the entire year. I, I The way it's put together, the thought and care that's put into it, the... I, I just, I don't know. I can't find enough good things to say about the art and the story on this there's defenders has just been so captivating to me it's something that hits all of my personal targets in what i look for in like a comic book it is everything that i want to read about it is characters that are engaging and that i love and that i want to see keep coming back and like 
again, I if all comic books coming out from mainstream comic book companies cared this much about what is on the page, what you're looking at, rather than being like, all right, draw some people talking out these words. <laughs> if if the story was moved along and in fact underpinned in a fundamental way in all big two comic books the way this is done, I would be out of money. <laughs> <laughs> I would be completely out of money. But also like the state of the art has never been higher. And I think that this is this is a comic book I'm going to think about for years and years and years to come. This is going to be one I point back to when I say like, you need to read this. This is a fundamental turning point in the way we understand not only the Marvel universe, but like the comic book art and the way that we talk, the, the art of making comic books, of making sequential art and how we talk about the histories of the companies and of the medium, the process and how it's made. So for me, the first issue was a, what the hell did I just read? But I love it. <laughs> and it kind of just grew from there, realizing what was happening and making the connections between each issue and between each cosmos and and between each art style, each character. It's It was something that just built on itself to improve each issue. And even though a lot of it was just like, what the hell is going on? It just makes sense because these characters at during the story don't exist in our normal cosmos. They're experiencing just as much bizarre events as what we're seeing on page. It's just an absolutely fascinating book that I went from being like, okay, I'm, I'm interested to, oh my God, I love this. So for me, I was really fascinated because I've read a little bit of the defenders that are these characters. Cloud is one of my favorite characters because truly before this, before their story got fleshed more, their character was really cheesecakey and a little bit bad because it was just a naked woman who was, had clouds around her, kind of a little bit like Naruto. And you're like, um, that's a little problematic. That's bad. Right. <laughs> and then looking more into the character of what they've done with them, I was like, oh my goodness, that's an actual interesting like character and then they haven't really been doing much so to see characters that i am familiar with be put in this situation that i do enjoy in a setting that i think is so fantastical and whimsical and scientific that i'm like was this book like were some of these themes written for me combining science and magic because science basically is just real life magic and having that power struggle between the two of having magic versus science and what that means for the marvel universe and how that affects everything that truly 90 percent of the population of Marvel Universe do not know about how it affects them in their daily day to life and how it basically keeps them alive. So I was really fascinated with what the themes the story was trying to tell us and how it went about those conflicts. We went to the science universe. We went previous to that to the magic universe. And now we're well, and then we went to the archetype universe. And now even before that, before narrative, before everything, I love that Al Ewing has just asked the question that scientists and philosophers and religions have been asking since since time immemorial, right? And it's the oldest question. It's why is there something instead of nothing? And Al Ewing answers that with because the defenders were there to make sure it was. <laughs> <laughs> and I love how it accidentally answered that question as to why life exists, basically. But the whole journey that we were taken on through this was not a journey I expected. You know, I, I think I expected to come out and say like, oh, cool, you know, we're going to figure out who the mask writer is. But the central mystery of that is so much less important 
important than the story as a whole in this journey through the cosmos and just learning a little bit more about how things progress in the Marvel Universe. So I got to say, like, you got that science aspect, you've got that magic aspect, you've got these amazing characters that I wanted to know more about. You've got a new character that I was like, oh, quote, air quote, is she going to be cool or is she going to be gimmick? Who I fucking love, Taya, is just amazing. Like, I need more of her. But, you know, I did not expect to get anything but like a kind of fun book. And I got so much more from this story. And I I absolutely love the hell out of it. And Steve, I gotta agree, this is probably my favorite Marvel book this year. Definitely hands down, like just the quality across the board and the story that is told. We obviously had our core set of defenders who got switched out a little bit along the way. And, you know, some left us a little earlier than we hoped they would. Was there a character that any of y'all fell in love with more than the others? I've got to say, like, I came for Harpy and to get more Cloud. Uh, and I loved their journey, especially Cloud. They got, I thought they got a really good arc considering, like Jonah, you had mentioned, some of their stuff in the past was a little campy, shall we say, where they were more sometimes used in the new defenders as a... I don't know, a springboard to, to make Bobby question his sexuality, maybe. I don't know. But however you, however that was, they weren't as much of a realized character as they became in this Fender's book. I love the gestalt form that they sort of took before they moved on from the book. Kaya was definitely the standout in this book for me. I did not expect to need nor love Galactus's air quote mom and to love a character who had such a funny gimmick in the way that they were presented with their thought bubbles but that girl can get it damn and she's got thighs for days so what characters really stood out to any of y'all uh, Taya is the breakout character of 2021. Oh, okay, yeah. Hands down. That's that's what it is. I agree with everything you said, and I'll add one more. Like, Harpy, I fell in love with Harpy here. Like, I really liked her in Immortal Hole, several other books, but, like, Betty Ross has incredibly grown on me. Taya is somebody I love and want to see more of. Cloud is personally important to me after the series. Like, I will never forget how much I love that character, and they are just somebody, somebody that's always going to be very dear to my heart after the series. Like, even the Silver Surfer, I like more than I maybe ever have in this series for oh. as brief as he was in here. There, he really did have a really, really, really good story that was told with him. Yes, I loved him. I and loved I him being presented with him. Yeah, the Master Rider was really cool too. Like everybody. <laughs> yeah, yeah, everybody was really good. But I have to agree, my favorite is Taya. I just loved her energy, her intensity. <laughs> she just made the book that much more fun once she joined the team. And sure. I'm happy that she has provided an avenue to come back at a later time yes i had to give it up to galactus's mom because <laughs> got it going is, on uh she does have it going on she got <laughs> cool ass battle fists and she fights with whole cans so hilarious <laughs> she does and we had to respect uh, we respect the drip and we respect her choice of weapons i think i have to agree with steve i think silver surfer was probably a, a really interesting character and it's not a character that i'm familiar with at least in terms of comics and i only wish that we got to see a little bit more because it felt like they were gone a little too soon but in replacement of silver surfer we did get taya and 
I was like, oh, this character's badass. Like, this is kind of what the book needed. It's the equivalent to me of you have Harpy, who's kind of the muscle of this group, and Taya's also the muscle, but the muscle with brains. So she's competing with Steven for being the smart one of the group. And it's just a very interesting character dynamic that I really appreciated that Taya brought. And then I also really enjoyed Master Raider because I was really fascinated as to what this character meant when I read Marvel 1000 and 1001. So seeing this character have their story come through this arc, which was kind of been in the works for a really long time, I'm really appreciative of that there is at least a payoff for people who did read those stories and were introduced to this character that has this important cosmic role in the grand scheme of the Marvelverse, but hasn't been seen since then, at least to my knowledge. I totally thought this was going to be a different person based on what a friend had told me and showed me from some earlier Master Raider appearances by, I think, Al Ewing, and so this blew me away. I only I only figured out the reveal like literally the page before the page turn like I was <laughs> like it just it struck me on the head I was literally astonished in the way that old old timey texts call it I was just like <laughs> thunderstruck and I was like oh my god it can't be and I turned the page and I'm like fuck <laughs> let's dive right into the, that big reveal right so obviously the mass raider was Carl Zoda like that's something that Steve like you said I didn't really see coming I I was thinking with the history that the master writer was sort of set up to have that it was going to be maybe a more important character but I think for the story itself that was a really good move to have the master writer basically set up this whole journey to create himself in a way so like I love yeah. the idea of the paradox in it and like the art sets it up too i can't wait to go back and reread the first four issues of this series and see how it is set up completely because like on that oh i don't know fourth page there's carlos ota split into a bunch of panels of his like pre-birth to death and after death uh and then just below that we get that panel of all of the defenders but with the mask greater interspersed between each getting closer on his face and fading out as he like steps away i loved that and it it should have tipped me off right then and there but like every subsequent panel in this is just the mask raider slowly slipping off on his own and i love i love the way that uh this comic the art actually like deliberately says like here is these two panels look at these and see the similarities when we first revealed what happened with carlo zoda when the mask shot his spellbook we saw something similar as a rebound effect of the magic where zoda's face was kind of split into that similar style not with like pre-birth to death but just fragments of zoda so it kind of goes back to that yes absolutely there are so many callbacks and intricacies <laughs> in the way that things are juxtaposed in the series uh visually it's just it's a work of art i can't I mean, oh yeah obviously it is but it's a, a good work of art i should say <laughs> But I cannot wait to go back through all of this. Like, even just like, I was, the beginning of this issue talks about like, you know, his, tar the Mass Raider's tarot card is the uh, Hierophant reversed. And I was trying to see how this this works because Al Ewing has kind of pulled some interesting switcheroos on me throughout the series about how he's connected these cards. And I was like, okay, well, he's a rejecter of previously established rules. So like, I was thinking about how like, maybe this is just an unexpected turn and that's what he meant. But then, you know, when once I got to the end of the issue, I started thinking about how he's, the whole existence of the Mass Raider is dependent entirely on Zota's belief that he can change destiny. Like that he, that this time, this part of the cycle, this loop around, that he'll make a different choice. And obviously, 
obviously that isn't what happens, but he does believe that that's the case. So he does reject what is previously accepted to be true. And I think that's a really interesting wow. um, work in of the tarot card for this character. I just started to do a read through of the current Iron Man series. And in the first issue, like I've read it after this issue here, like Carlos Zoda shows up and he's, you know, working with Korvac, you know, helping Korvac get set up. And I was like, holy shit, like there's Carlos Zoda. Like, oh my gosh, like I never really noticed. And Korvac like, was in here. Yeah. <laughs> insanely enough i was like oh wow i never realized that that was going on at the same time because you know before carlos Zoto was somebody who you know, maybe i'd seen before but i never really took notice or stock of steve you mentioned a really like important part of this book just the use of the tarot cards to sort of predetermine some of the choices or the personalities or the outcomes that these characters will have taken now i know you're a little bit more familiar with the interpretations of these cards than i am but i gotta ask everyone did this book help you understand maybe these cards a little bit better? Uh, me as somebody who is definitely getting more interested in the tarot as a art form, I would have to say I love any time that they can really make certain cards stand out and sort of maybe expand what you think it's going to mean or what it's going to mean to these characters having been drawn these cards. Like anytime you get that, sign me the fuck up because I, that's the kind of shit that I need to help me understand more of this mystical art form yes the, sh the short answer is yes for me. I, uh, <laughs> I, i've said it several times on twitter now lately but i have done more learning about tarot cards from al ewing than i have learning about tarot cards in order to understand al ewing this series has helped me understand a lot of the cards in new and different ways give me a little bit of a deeper understanding and now i say that i've been taught tarot by two comic book writers between rachel pollock and al ewing yeah love that <laughs> while i enjoy the art of tarot cards i struggle to get the understanding of them to stick in my head that's there you go so I, I like the usage of tarot cards in comic books. I mean, between this and Ten of Swords, I have been really enjoying it. It just, the meanings don't always stick to me. I will say that is the, one of the more beautiful things about tarot is that there are so many different interpretations and meanings that you can gather from the cards based on who's doing the reading or what the, your deck is trying to tell you. So there's always not, you know, one specific meaning, though usually they do tend to line up, but I understand what you're saying, it can be confusing if you're not used to <laughs> what's uh what, what these cards mean i think this book really utilized tarot well what i really enjoyed the most about is using reverse cards i don't think uh, people who may have a passing interest in tarot might not always understand what a reverse card means or how exactly one is pulled. But when you use, I think using a reverse of a card, I think could be even more interesting than just using a straight up tarot because that it's a meaning flipped on its head. It's the opposite of what it normally means. So I was really appreciative of mixing in both a traditional straight up card reading as well as a reverse card reading. And I'm really happy. And I think the ones that they chose for each character really meshed well for them. And I didn't really broaden my understanding but i did appreciate what they were doing yeah Jonah, i love that you brought up the reverse card readings because that was probably the most interesting part about this to me i'll admit as a novice tarot reader i often skip reverse card readings because they can be they, they can be a little bit more difficult for me to explain and because i am somewhat new at it it's a little bit more difficult and i don't want to throw in any any sticks into my wheels yeah i mean like i've i've always understood reverse readings to be like when you you essentially like there's a blockage of energy or something that is normally present is missing from this or like the other elements that are complemented by the card are are present here instead 
Um, so it was actually, it was super good for me to get Al Ewing's take on this because like, yeah, as, as Kyle mentioned up, sometimes it can be hard to hold all these meanings in your head, but the meaning, the meanings that you like look up on websites or in books are just, you know, like that's, that's what somebody has read out of the cards. It's not a set, like this is the truth and you have to remember these things. And these are keywords. None of that is real. This book is like Al, re- Al is doing a reading on us, you know, like on, on the defenders and this is Al's reading. And I, I was super grateful to get his interpretation of what each card reversed was. I love how this book almost turned it, it almost sort of like what you were saying, Steve, it almost seems like Al Ewing just like drew a, like a set of cards to do a reading and was like, Ooh, this would be a really good defenders team. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, I I'd like to think that he put the defenders team together first and then figured out the cards based on them. I'm sure that's what happened. (laughs) Well, if he, if he just pulled those cards out, Al Ewing, please let us know because that I will be very interested to, know and i'll be very impressed (laughs) (laughs) that's how well he did it though that it seems like it could have just been a random reading instead of in a very intentional set of cards chosen for these very intentional set of characters that you know sometimes when certain writers do that they don't always doesn't always come across in that same way but this this comes across very very easy very breezy it's just very flowing It, it makes sense everything works you're not really having to try that hard to force your character into the card especially once their arc has been revealed for the story what do we think about the amazing third cosmos that we are that most of our action takes place in i I love the idea of this place you know it's definitely probably the most bare bone cosmos it definitely has to be the most bare bone cosmos that we have seen so far in the book and i just i really love that idea what was your guys's relationship with this cosmos when we got into it i'm glad they didn't go with the simplistic black versus white that would have been like probably an obvious narrative choice to a lot of people as they make clear in the narration this is not like black versus white this is not life versus death this is not good versus evil this is something like everything thing the concept of thing versus no thing you know this is null versus one and i i think that is i think that's really evident here in the way they did it like it is simplistic and it, it's very dramatic and stark but it, it's not reduced to the layer of like black and white lines which is honestly what i kind of expected from it um so there's a lot more that they can do with it this shining life bringer one that looks sort of like captain america <laughs> against <laughs> the dragon in the dark and I, I think that's a lot more interesting than the more obvious narrative conceits because this is pre-narrative right trying to take out all narrative you have you're left with the fundamental question of why why is there Oh, oh, oh. I had a couple of things bouncing around my head. What they had referenced was that Lightbringer one was the was the first century. It's the century versus the void. Yeah. And that kind of led me into I had a a bunch of pictures of dragons on my screen, and one of them was Nulls dragons, the null dragons from King and Black. Oh, the symbiote dragons? Yeah, the symbiote dragons. Which is not not what I meant when I said null earlier, but I, I know, I know. Because <laughs> <laughs> that's clearly it, why he's named that. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So this is a a cycle that just keeps happening and happening and happening, and I'm kind of at a loss for words now that I I kind of 
made that sort of connection. But yeah, I love the way this cosmos looks. I love the art deco-y look to Lightbringer 1, that 1920s Mercury style. Yeah. Is this Metropolis Captain America meets St. George? That's what what I was... That was the reference that I've been trying to, to remember all morning. Thank you. Metropolis. Yeah. So the idea of this being a something versus nothing or existence versus nothing and by the defenders existing and using their powers it pulls the strength from lightbringer one and gives anti-all the upper hand just by them being there it's it's really fascinating uh because it it's it's an instance of they're they're trying to help but they're helping is making things worse yeah yeah it's interesting that just by being there they are fucking it all up mm-hmm. uh, just like yeah i don't know that's that's super interesting me yeah the idea that any of the i mean just like the whole the fact that any time they are using their powers or abilities that it's raining lifebringer one i was like oh no like oh holy shit like come on when Carlos Zoda gets confronted with the fact that he actually becomes the Mask Raider, we do get to see Eternity come in for a moment and, and talk about the Eternity Mask. I just the idea behind what the abilities the mask does, it makes you equal in power to anyone that you may face, even if it's themselves. Like, that's such a fucking fascinating idea. Like, how are y'all feeling about the actual power of this mask? Which, you know, when it's been presented to us, it really hasn't seemed like it's been this amazing all-encompassing power but the fact that you can make yourself equal to whoever you are facing is a really fascinating idea and then it just makes you equal to not better than so you still have to use your own skill guile intuition however you want to put it to defeat the foe you're facing yeah um, you've got a, you've got an equal chance of winning in battle right but that's yeah. still like just 50 50 so like yeah. you might have gone from like a one in 25 chance of fighting galactus I, that's, <laughs> that's too high but... <laughs> i was like one in 25 babe, really yeah <laughs> i would i would take those odds if i could fight galactus is a one in 25 that i would win yeah <laughs> that's that's the thing's chance of knocking down galactus right <laughs> oh. i mean this this issue was probably the best representation of how the mask actually works just because of the way that it allows zoda slash master raider to take on anti mm-hmm. it allows him to it increases his size so so that he's able to grapple with Antiol with with this dragon, and it allows the rest of the defenders to help Lightbringer one recover. It's not really a a matter of do I need to defeat this thing myself. It's I need to be able to hold this thing back so that somebody else can take care of it for me. In the the battle itself when we're getting into it like one of my favorite things is it's on page 14 of digital but it's right after the master rose you've got that beautiful panel of harpy kaya and strange and they're all oh in their primary mm. colors i'm mm-hmm. like three of them have never looked better yes I'm like, <laughs> holy shit like this is amazing like and i, I love the the use of the color there is just fucking phenomenal mm. yeah and then that blast at the suddenly black and white life bringer right in the chin with that like i, I don't know 
how to describe this other than that is a Jack Kirby ass fucking panel. Yes, the aura coming out behind his head, and then just below that, I, what I would feel is a little bit more of a Steve Ditko thing, but <laughs> just really gorgeous. Like I, I could just look at the art for days. I could live in this book and be fine. I could live in it, be fine. Um, I'd like enjoy the rest of my days. Eternity on this page is the best I've seen him in a long time. A lot of people just like to do the same thing that we've seen a billion times with Eternity, and this is like this is an eternity who is a living creature not just standoffish in the back but crouching down and reaching out to to hold this little bit of itself i have to say the way that he used the colors for that it, it very much reminds me of almost very stylistically in that one particular thing almost like Sinkevichy. and i'm like holy shit i fucking love it totally and you know it's a it's a good combination of all the colors and shapes and forms that we've seen before in this series there's even like little pixelated parts of suns and stuff you uh earlier brought up the battle with the antiol and how the mask is really interesting in that battle. I thought the most interesting use of the mask was a mask raider versus Carlos Ota in the in the climactic scene. This is honestly this is the most important scene for me in the entire book so far. When you know he's got the gun on Zota and he just says like the choice ain't mine. I'm always going to be a sucker for a protagonist who just like allows the wheels of destiny to spin to see like to give the other person a chance to make the moral choice. That is always my favorite thing. And it's great because like not only are they the same person, so obviously they have kind of equal power, but they have an equal chance in this battle because of the wearing of the the mask and the mass raider enters this battle with a gun and ends up getting shot with it it's kind of like when a wrestler brings the tax in because you know they're going to go in the tax <laughs> it's it's really great how that is the thing uh not only were they equal as people equal in power and equal in battle but like he earlier already made the decision not to shoot zota so that's how it was always going to be there's only one person who could make the shoot to to shoot the mass raider and that's zota himself yeah the idea of i love how Zoda becoming the macerator really plays with the ideas of, you know, predestination paradoxes and, you know, what was always is going to be, but the belief that the, in the macerator and, and Zoda that they could change what was and make it not what it will be is, is such a fascinating battle. Ironically, the whole existence of this paradox, of this time paradox, like the, the fate that is here only exists because the macerator rejects destiny and attempts to change it. Like, if yeah. he didn't attempt to change this timeline then this wouldn't exist in the first place it is very <laughs> naughty knotted with a k oh darn it'd be more fun if it was with an n but anyway no. <laughs> um, um so yeah jonah what how did you feel about the way the battle between mass raider and zoda played out and just you know the whole battle between the Lightbringer and the anti-life i was really fascinated yeah. it was a twist that i wasn't actually expecting i wasn't ex- i did not actually think we were going to be revealed to who this current master raider was i thought that was a wonderful choice and having it be zoda himself being like i could stop myself in the past and then failing and having to go through all of this only for himself to die is uh master raider self die was really i was like wow that that is what a cool way to bring a story in life to this character to like come have a full cyclical nature through uh through and through and something about it was just so satisfying seeing them fight and then seeing how Zoda got the mask in the first place of, of them doing a quick flashback into how he got it and how he was going to stop himself it was really interesting and I, I was kind of a little bit on the edge of my seat and then when Mass Raider Zoda dies and you're like oh no what's possibly going to happen I thought Saiyan Zoda was going to put the mask on himself and that's how was, that they was going to be saved because he's going to be like no I still need to I need to fix things because that's how a lot of villains tend to do they're like have a 
quick sudden change of heart to be like no what i did was bad i didn't do anything for character arc but i'm going to change but that didn't happen and instead he combined with the dragon and i was like damn that's really cool and then when dr strange and his compatriots they all became one color which is one of my favorite panels to create this light sword i was like damn this is really epic this is like I, i i feel like i can't stop saying the word it's just cool like this was just cool it was just like a lot of fun and really interesting to watch and then uh have it all dissipate in the way it did nothing felt like there was a stone unturned i think everything happened in the way it was meant to happen which is kind of on brand for this book right it feels like everything was able to come into place in a harmonious and natural way yeah i definitely agree definitely agree as the battle wrapped up and we get our tearful i don't know how tearful they are for harpy but we get our tearful farewells (laughs) for our team you know we do get maybe sort of a setup into how Taya can be brought back in but where do we think you know from Zoda himself to Harpy to Taya to Strange how do we feel about their endings in the story and you know with that last page reveal that Defenders will return which had me going like fuck yeah like I think I like texted Steve right away like oh my god did you see it right like but like you know like how do we feel about where this team is left off do we feel that they will all be coming back do we hope they will all be coming back like what are our hopes for the future of defenders of this i love that there is a strong possibility that strange will call taya and that we'll see more of taya i like the idea of them dating yeah <laughs> me too it's fun i think taya would be good for strange she makes him look stupid a lot in the series <laughs> That's healthy for him. Uh, <laughs> although we do know that like l- literally in the last, like the second to last page on this, there's a reference to death of Dr. Strange taking place immediately after this. So mm. obviously Cleof plays a heavy role in that. And also there's, you know, his death, but we will get into that on later coverage. I'm unsure how they will make it work in respect to death of Dr. Strange. I'm assuming that with the new series coming up, featuring Clea that there's going to be a path towards bringing Strange back but uh I, I I don't know. I am excited uh, that there is going to be more Defenders. I'm just trying to figure out what kind of incarnation it's going to be. Jonah, any thoughts, hopes, or fears for what Defenders will look like coming up? I would love for another similar magical adventure with other Defenders. I know that she's technically not alive, but like, if you want to change it with Jane or Runa, have Valkyrie come back. Oh. I would love to see maybe Beast or Angel or Iceman, Gargoyle. There are a lot of like defenders that I think you can really have some interesting stories with if you want to add them, especially if we're going to involve some mutants now too. More defenders in, in a similar style like this um, with other defender characters that some were maybe didn't get as much love or aren't as notable, someone like Gargoyle. Oh, but you could also bring Mr. Fantastic and that would be funny to see him and Strange, you know, bicker about science and magic. Oh, that would. Mm-hmm. I am interested to see though how anything revolving the defenders will resolve with the death of dr strange i like that there was a little nod to that where Stephen was like maybe tomorrow you know i'm at the deal with my death but such is the life of the sorcerer supreme i <laughs> that was a little cheeky <laughs> so i am really interested to see how that is going to affect things going forward yeah and you just brought up the gargoyle and i wanted to say this this very final page is a nice little love letter to previous defenders runs yes. in so many ways like there's a little gargoyle statue there's the new defenders with 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 the x-men minus gene gray and cyclops (laughs) there's i love 
looking through this list of books that were on here. There's Words, Words and Music by Paul Morley. There's uh, Love Saves the Day by Tim Lawrence. Love Goes to Buildings on Fire. We got the uh, the Faber Book of Pop, 24-Hour Party People. But like just tucked away in a corner, there's also Douglas Folk's All of the Marvels, which I can recommend personally. I have just, have just read it. And also there's a thick, thick book of A Garden of Earthly Demise by Steve Gerber, which is literally just one issue of Defenders Volume 1. So uh, <laughs> must be either either Ewing or Rodriguez's favorite issue or maybe both of theirs, but that's a lot of fun. Yeah, and I love Loki helmet on the skull. You've got the picture of Namor and Hulk right by him. You've got the Valkyrie statue. It's just like, you're right, there's so many nod to the Defenders of the past. Like, mm-hmm. it's fucking amazing. Like, what I would love to see, I gotta see Taya come back. Like, I have to see Taya come back. I'd love to see, love it if they could work, if he could work away for Cloud for them to come back because that would be epic and amazing and I really want to see more of the journey that they're going to take like they're just such a cool character and I think Al Ewing really took the idea and made it something that really could speak to a lot of people in a lot more of a real way than the way it was done in the new Defenders where they weren't given a chance to become more than the sum of their parts where now they are a a fully realized being and I really would love to see more of that journey but yeah I just give me some more callbacks to the classic Defenders like if Clea was actually a defender herself so if it's got to be Clea as strange I'd love to see Taya come back and just instead of flirting with strange just flirting with Clea that would be fucking amazing like sign me the fuck up for it like she seems like she would do that I just want to see more of some nods to classic defenders some getting to know some more pet projects of Al Ewing because that harpy is totally if if nothing else a, a very pet project of Al Ewing like he loves that character and I'd love to see you know just another big grand adventure like you guys like like all y'all said i'd love to see another big grand adventure so when lifebringer one shatters antiol you see a bunch of crystals that are all emblazoned with different styles of dragons on on them one of them is the iron fist dragon tattoo shape i did not even catch that i am looking at that now that is a really good catch holy shit yeah wow i was not paying close attention to that one but that is that that'll teach me to not pay close attention to any panel of Javier Rodriguez. <laughs> you are absolutely correct right there. There are a number of dragons and one of them is distinctly Shalau. Yes. Holy hell, that rock. So I'm wondering if Shalau is actually just a fragment of Antiol that's well, been say, sent into the cosmos. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I, yeah, I mean, like, yeah, there's that, they do say that bit where they're like, uh, when we fight against the great nothing in our own times, we fight back against the anti-all as well. Mm-hmm. And I love how right before it, 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 this is really like, like this is like almost like set up some of the multiverse, like fascinating. And the dragon's fractured like a hologram perhaps, perhaps a piece for every piece of this multiverse and every multiverse come like, holy shit, like the implications of this panel right here, just like, oh. I know I was looking at this and I was like, how can I make this, how can I make this relevant to something is killing the children. <laughs> Listen, I if if anybody could do it, Al Ewing could do it. Nice colors. <laughs> yes, nice colors, great pencil and uh, ink work, amazing words. I loved it all. I love everything in it. It's all really good. Yeah, same. So much love to the team. Very happy to finally get Javier Rodriguez Silver Surfer. I don't know if he's been drawn by him before, but now I've got Mike Allred and Treadmore and Javier Rodriguez doing Silver Surfer. That's just, that's a trinity right there. Like the holy trinity of artists for Silver Surfer. I fucking love it. Yes.
Hey everybody, welcome back to X's for Podcast, the show where we take a look at comics, mutants, magic, and spirits of vengeance. I'm Nico. You can check me out on Twitter and Instagram at NicoAction. That's N-I-C-O-A-C-T-I-O-N. And that, as usual, makes me Kevo. You can find me over on the socials at Kevo Reilly, K-E-V-O-R-E-A-L-L-Y. And I'm TK. You can find me on Twitter and Instagram at XNateXGrayX. And I have assembled this amazing crew of guys I love so much to talk about one of my favorite recent characters that Marvel has been working with. Kushala, the demon writer, was introduced in the pages of Doctor Strange and the Sorcerer Supreme, and she has gone on to become the spirit writer, sort of a, a mini legend in sort of the ghost writer world, where she is, while the second female ghost writer, certainly the more memorable of the two. No offense, Ms. Jones. So we're here today to talk about Spirits of Vengeance, Spirit Rider, as well as the Kushala Infinite comic. Now, Spirits of Vengeance, Spirit Rider is by Taboo. That's right, guys, because everybody knows Taboo is Taboo of the Black Eyed Peas. We're about to get it started in here. I am legitimately ready to funk with your hearts. Guys, I'm so excited that this is by a Black Eyed Pea. I can't even fucking tell you guys. I'm having such a good time reading this. Okay. Uh, it's written by Taboo and B. Earl. And if I got to write with Taboo, I would also want to be Earl. The artist is Paul Davidson with color art by Dan Brown. Now, the Leviathan story had unique art by Jeffrey Vergi. And now the whole book was lettered by VC's Joe Caramagna with cover art by Takashi Okazaki and Rico Renzi. Now, while there is a number of amazing variant covers, I did just want to point out that Stacy Zucker is credited with creating the logo for this title. And whenever Marvel goes out of their way to credit anybody with doing anything, it's always kind of a big deal, you know? The Infinite comic was written by Taboo. Guys, that's Taboo <laughs> of the Black Eyed Peas. Guys, Ella Funk themselves. Right. Um, so that's Taboo and B. Earl on writing chores on the Infinite comic as well, although writing Kushala could never be a chore. The art is by Guillermo Sana with colors by Ruth Redmond and letters by VCs Joe Sabino. Okay, so this is one of the more unusual things I have asked people to read for me on this show, but I want to start things off with, guys, how do you Ghost Rider? Do you guys the Nicolas Cage movies? Do you guys the PBS Kids show about the power of words? How do you guys ghost writer? I ghost writer what my husband yells at me about ghost writer. Yeah, that sounds about our marriage. Yep. My experience has been relatively similar. I did watch the movie when I was a kid. I could not remember a single thing about it. If you ask me now, I have been peeking in on Robbie Reyes lately. And other than that, I was completely devoid of knowledge of this character prior to reading this. What year did that movie come out? Does anyone remember off the top of their heads? I want to say 99. Oh, yeah, I definitely wouldn't have cared about that back then. I'm looking it up so that I can... 2007. What? So the Ghost Rider film came out in 2007, and it's that it looks like it's a video game released for PlayStation 1 in 1999. Correct. Oh, we had just met. Yeah, yeah. February and 2007. 
I t- took my dad to see this. Why? He was, he was real mad. He was so mad at me. <laughs> he would be. Was that a punishment? That was your vengeance. <laughs> kind of, right? My relationship with Ghost Rider is a little bit more odd. I love Daredevil, as everyone knows, and I dabble a bit in the other sort of street level characters as much as I'm able to. And Daredevil is frequently included on gritty relaunches of the Marvel Universe. And in 1994, 1995, there was a gritty relaunch of a number of these sort of Sons of Midnight characters, but uh, done a little bit different, I guess. And it was over the edge. And so I sort of associate Ghost Rider with the grittification of a lot of things I love. It is also of note that, and now this is a, a special moment between me and one of my best friends and series contributor, Tori Sheehan. It's also of note that Karen Page inexplicably dates a Ghost Rider for like 20 12 issues in the 70s and it's so good so we will be covering that on the billy club when we get there sequentially we're all excited about special karen page episodes but i always thought of ghost rider as kind of like he's that thing that comes in and makes your book less good and what i discovered when they created a female ghost rider was i'm interested in the property with the right person behind the flame and then when robbie reyes was created my life changed like in an instant and And I was just, I knew for the rest of my life, I was going to love this fictional character forever. And I went back, I read a lot more Ghost Rider. It helps that a lot of my favorite sort of gritty, fuck you, John Constantine kind of character writers that I love from Vertigo and my Punisher writers, because I I love Punisher as an element of loving Daredevil. You know, they hate each other so much that you kind of have to appreciate what a piece of shit Frank Castle is, you know? Um, They all write Ghost Rider. Garth Ennis, Jason Aaron. I guess it's just the two, but they all write Ghost Rider. And it, it is enough. Those are like two of my those are like two of my places of power. So I I don't know. There's something about the idea that you could have this intersectionality of a ghost writer and a sorcerer supreme that changed my understanding of fiction. And I'd love to ask you guys a little bit about your understanding of sorcerer supreme as a title. And considering it seems at any given moment, like Marvel editorial isn't exactly sure what that term should mean. It's a chaos term. Uh- let it be what it is. I don't think there's any wrong answers. Yeah, I think you're correct. I I mean, like very clearly they have been playing around these last 10 plus years with what it could mean to be Sorcerer Supreme. It is starting to resemble in many ways the Slayer where, you know, it's this lineage and we're getting all of these previous Sorcerer Supreme and sort of expanding the idea. And when you told me about Kushala, who was a character I really did not know, the idea that you could take a Ghost Rider and take a Sorcerer Supreme and put them together. I love when people kind of take bold swings like that and you get to dig into multiple continuities, multiple backgrounds, and you get a character that is inevitably unique. Plus, I just love mashups. Yeah, especially when it's not like an Infinity Warp or something like this is this one is sticking. And that was the joke I was about to make. You know, Marvel loves to do hybridizations of characters as sales points. And this could have been that kind of cash grab, but it really wasn't. No, this is a special character. And it's one we were talking about, you know, characters that are unique and show up here and there, but aren't, you know, features on books very often. And this is a very strong character that from 
the three things I've read with her she really adds, I mean, obviously she's the focus. So, you know, of course she's adding a lot, but in Dr. Strange and the Sorcerer Supreme, she really adds weight and interest to the book. Kevo, I think your full extent of interaction with Dr. S- I almost said Dr. Supreme, Strange Sorcerer. <laughs> All right. Uh, so Dr. Sorcerer and the Supremes. You know what? I, I would not be shocked if Dr. Strange pushed Mary right off the fucking stage, full <laughs> Diana mode, no regrets. But seeing as your relationship with Doctor Strange is primarily based in the films, not though solely, it does bring to question your definition of Sorcerer Supreme as guy who guards the time stone. I mean, I've I have read my random assortment of comics, so I understand that it connects to a lot of different characters like Nico Minoru from Runaways or Billy Kaplan from Young Avengers, and there's a lot of different characters who interact with Sorcerer Supreme. So I get I, I get the title sense of it, and I get that it's like, you know, I'm the best sorcerer ever, ever anywhere, or at least in the tri-state area. Yeah, and that was something that I really loved about Jed McKay's Death of Doctor Strange number 5, so clearly illustrating that there's different places and different ways to be Sorcerer Supreme. Now, I know that term gets bandied about a lot, but frequently, it does get forgotten that Ileana Rasputin, better known as the X-Man Magic, is Sorcerer Supreme of Limbo. And it pretty quickly gets kind of like, oh, well, that's not a big deal. But no, it is a big deal. It's a title that means wields, you know, wields the most magic. Just can't stop slanging the magic. And has responsibilities, is, you know, the protector of their realm. It starts to sort of look like the doctor from The Authority when Strange talks about being a defense system, a magical defense system for the planet. I agree. Now, we start our experience with Kushala here a little bit into her canon. At this point, she's appeared in 12 issues of Doctor Strange and the Sorcerer Supreme as well as an additional few issues in places like Marvel's War of the Realms, Journey into Mystery 4 and 5, and a Ghost Rider one-off here or there. This was the first time that it really seemed like people were going to dig into Kushala's canon for the sake of Kushala in the pages of Spirit Rider, Spirits of Vengeance. Now, I do need to say that I was perhaps not expecting this to be both a Johnny Blaze story and a Kushala story. But, you know, Johnny Blaze is kind of the ghostwriter, I guess, for most people. How did it feel trying to find room for a ghostwriter who's also a Sorcerer Supreme and another ghostwriter and Doctor Strange? Like, this was a pretty loaded story in terms of magical mainstays. Oh my God, for a second, I thought you were saying Johnny Blaze had been a Sorcerer Supreme. And I was like, no, I don't accept that. Okay. He's too stupid. No, he's King of Hell. Ugh. That's fine. You know, the story sets itself up very quickly and very well and makes it clear why these three people have to be here. She is the combination of their two spheres of influence, Mm. and there's problems in both, so let's dig into them. I have to say, though, after having several issues of the new run of Black Knight and seeing Dane Whitman in the early issues of that, I was not thrilled to have to come to another failing white man who just constantly is a disappointment. Like, I was really hoping when we got to the thing with his mom that he'd be like, no, I'm going to do the right thing. Nope. And thank God for characters like Kushala to kick them in the ass. 
And I think that was one of the things that made the inclusion of a second Ghost Rider, who frankly I did not have room for, a lot easier in this story. I felt comforted by the fact that even though Johnny Blaze is the first Ghost Rider we see, it very quickly becomes a Kushala story, which I appreciate very much. And it's not just that she is there to clean up this idiot's mess. She gets something big out of it. It is a big step forward for her. It's more her story than his in the end. Which is so fascinating because I think one of the things that we see a lot of is canon in Marvel that we don't realize has never had certain answers provided or the answers are frequently contradictory to themselves inherently. Every couple of years, somebody tells us where the Phoenix gets all its power from, even though that's every couple of years a story. Every few years is the first time the Danger Room or Cerebro comes to life. Or every few years is the first aliens that have decided to kill all mutants. It's just a thing. It's a well we go to. So the fact that so early on in her canon, this issue sought to create a deeper understanding of the mythos of Kushala for me was really quite a thrill because I had been very nervous as we saw Johnny Blaze appear and we found out more about his family that this was going to inevitably devolve. But what it really did become was a question of what we define a character by. And I think what I came to realize is even if Kushala is a spirit of vengeance, her story was never defined by rage. And that's something that was transformative for me. This issue made me realize that, you know, while all the other ghostwriters are kind of selfish a little bit, like, I don't know. Like, I'm not trying, but like, it's kind of like a, it's a goofy thing. It's like a crossroads demon. You know what I mean? But her rage is actually sadness and protection. And that's something that I feel is easy to overlook. She's not just a flaming skull. And that's one of the things that makes her character so special. And she's not really going around with the same motivations like tearing the same path through the marvel universe she you know her whole prior arc about getting control of her spirit of vengeance is about sort of always finding balance and it continues in this Mm. now i think my first question for everybody is how did you guys interpret a lot of the mythos surrounding the demons involved I'll be honest, I don't always follow a lot of the Zarathos stuff or, you know, the difference between Zarathos and Mephisto without doing a little bit more research, right? It's something where the names all kind of start to bleed together for me. So this story did take a little bit of research on my end, but I ultimately did come to remember a lot of these stories and a lot of the really interesting ways they intersect with different aspects of the Marvel Universe. Keva, with your slightly more limited perspective on the magic side of the Marvel Universe, and TK, with your only dabbling in recently was the fact that there are specific demons powering the ghost riders and spirits of vengeance a unique dynamic change for you yeah that threw me a little i think in my case i just kind of rolled with it you know like i assumed that there was background i didn't know about And I just kind of allowed the story to happen as it was. And what I appreciated was that, you know, ultimately what we really get into the meat of the story is about Kushala's vengeance spirit specifically and the wider implications of that, which are then going to go on in the Infinity comic that we'll talk about. So while I was very aware that there was a lot 
lot of stuff I did not know. I don't think at any point I felt like I am completely lost or I'm completely missing out on the point of this because I don't know the background of these demons or like know what their characteristics are. I think what ultimately threw me more than any of the mythos being confusing is the way the narrative jumped from being about, you know, helping Johnny and healing him. And you're going to go through these circles. And then like that stops immediately at the second circle when Johnny and Kushala become separated. And then the narrative becomes entirely about Kushala's backstory. And I'm not complaining about that, but it really feels like around page 23 of 33 it just completely drops the entire johnny narrative and we stop going through those flashes and then when we come back to him it's just like oh i healed you and that's okay even because i didn't enjoy that narrative as much it's it's something i feel like i have seen before the idea of a man having to revisit his trauma to heal from it and it was just a lot of johnny backstory when i knew we were really doing this to focus on kushala so i was like all right that is whatever but then it just i I don't know i feel like it really confused the plot of the overall issue for me that that just gets dropped after all of the setup It was like the author realized, like, as he's writing it, he's like, this dude's not interesting. And rather than going back and, like, let's just kind of dump him and keep going with Kushal. (laughs) Kind of. And, you know, there actually really is some precedence to that happening here and there in canon where the, the intended main character just does not wind up the main character of the story. And that's how you have breakout characters. That's how Kushala got her story in the first place. Mm. So now I am with you guys a bit on the way it breaks up the narrative structure of the story. It is one of the only real kind of moment dings in an otherwise very well-paced story. That was one of the things that I appreciated, even though these issues do actually clock in a little bit longer. Number one, those are very long infinite comics. Like yes. those were yeah, twice the length of any normal infinity comic. It makes me wonder if perhaps Maybe part of the way through the series, they realized they were going digital. I don't know. Mm. But those were significantly longer than average. And it is not unnoticed that the Spirits of Vengeance one shot clocked in at a, you know, brisk 36 pages. And it is hard to necessarily keep track of all of the turning cogs in a one shot when you have so much story to tell in such a short space. But it did not feel as smooth as it could have with that sort of forethought in mind. One of the places that the book spent some of that time capital that could have been used other places was on the art. And the art was luscious and the art was gorgeous. And I think one of the best examples of how powerful the art on this book is, is on digital page 26. The two page spread of the Wand of Watum's explanation for me is just incredibly high art. It's well written for a really clunky thing to have to talk about canon right you know the info dump of canon it could be boring this is entertaining this is energetic i loved how they chose to spend the time that we noticed wasn't spent somewhere else so at least that's the benefit how did you guys feel about the art overall were there any other key art moments that for you really told the story A lot of the flashback pages do a really great job of both narrative economy within the art itself, gorgeous use of color, um, and just giving us sort of the glimpses that we need into Kushala's life to understand why this is all happening. It was a lot of fire. Absolutely. And what's so interesting is she's not on fire. 
Yeah. Ghost writers are frequently very on fire, and she's not. So to have so much fire iconography makes a lot of sense to try and drive the central idea of the character home. But another thing that I did notice is the design of the Leviathan is particularly chaotic. It is not specifically like a giant fish or a giant lizard. It is a very chaotic sort of lizard, scorpion, alien creature. And in that, I think they create something that looks very not demonic the way we would associate demons with Ghost Rider normally. There's sort of an alien look to it, which I really appreciate in terms of Kushala. Because this character is so alien to the world they've put her in, I can't imagine imagine stunt man has a flaming skull and fights gangsters would eventually come to be seven generations of native people share the power of vengeance and sorcery supreme to protect their family lineage like i can't imagine that was the intent you know So I think that she is so alien to the world she inhabits, making the true power behind her ability, this Leviathan, this specific dark force, look so alien, very much connects to the heart of her existence. There is something very powerful about the fact that an invading force lodged itself into her heart through her family lineage and is what's giving her the strength to fight for her family. And I think it sets her apart that this is not a demon, you know, this is not a limbo, a hell, Mephisto demon. This is an otherworldly entity. This is an extra dimensional being that, Mm. you know, became an embodiment of failure and vengeance and this like dark like cancerous cycle between it the world that it was and the people that were on it and it all collapsed and it fell into our universe and that is what she made contact with not you know some demon as we would think of it with horns and a tail and all that but this entity that represents so much pain as we sort of dissect the idea behind the issue and we take a look at the idea that kushala is meant to be not just the main character but this is really her journey it makes so much sense that the johnny journey from the beginning of the story that got dropped so readily didn't need to be here maybe i almost wish there could have been a different reason to bring johnny in because i do feel like johnny's part in this is so unimportant to the bigger picture and it perhaps muddies what is otherwise a very straightforward narrative about a very dynamic character I mean, I think maybe like the best thing I can take away from it is that it does sort of reinforce that con the contrast between them. Like, yes, they are both riders and there are common themes between them, but they got to this from very, very different places. And I think it's then even to help illustrate the differences between them as they push Kushala into her next story direction. And, you know, her next direction is so brilliantly and beautifully seated in this one shot. In the pages of this one shot, in the aforementioned page 26 digital splash page, there's a reference to the Wands of Watum, which are then drawn into that beautiful splash art, and they are at the very heart of the Kushala Infinite comic. Now, when I say that these felt very long, I don't 
necessarily mean that as a dig by any means, but it is hard not to notice that these is some big boys. These are some very big boys. Yeah, the only unfortunate thing about it is you really have to want to read this. And in my case, I did because you hyped up Kushala for me and it was a very snowy night. I wasn't going anywhere. So to sit down for a while and just take this whole story in was actually quite a privilege. But it's not the kind of thing that's going to be very easy to just sell a random person on and say, trust me, like if you dig through these issues, you're going to get a great story. You know, when I asked Kevo to read this, I hadn't considered that when I read it, I was sitting in an airport and had my headphones on and was trying to drown out the world as I had an incredibly late flight and it was killing me. So it is something where without having any sort of way to demark how long these are, it can be a real crapshoot. And Kevo, I know for you, reading comics is frequently something that, you know, they just get dense. You kind of prorate your time on how long a book is. And with no way to know how long a book is on Marvel Unlimited, that has to be daunting. I have AD. PhD, it hurt my brain. <laughs> now, I love this infinite comic as an idea. I love it as a story. I love so many of the things it brings up and represents. There are some interesting storytelling choices. I perhaps didn't need the late story and media res opening. She just made it feel a little bit longer. But other than the opening not really serving the rest of the story per se, I was hooked right off the bat. How did you guys feel about the story? Well, I have to argue, though, that it might not be the best way to start narratively for an audience, but I do think that it served a very large narrative purpose in terms of starting in Medea Res. They bring it back full circle very strongly in the eighth issue. I definitely agree with that. Logistically, I know that, and I, having read the whole thing, I can see that big picture, and I think it was beautifully rendered. It did sort of start me off in a very chaotic place, kind of unsure of what I was getting myself into and then it really dips into something much more low-key so it was an odd especially coming right off of spirits of vengeance it was difficult to find my entry point but i since i found the main character compelling it quickly became a ride that i was there for mm -hmm. now i will say one of the things that had me very confused is i loved that the previous story focused on kushala as a character in a very active way she's just like hey it's me kushala and i'm hanging out at a coffee shop and like she's super normal cakes and and then she's like, oh, let me transform into my powerful garb. And I'm like, I'm here for it. And then she's like, got to go back to the 1800s. And I'm like, okay. And now this story, they're like, hey, you know what we haven't done in a while? Let's possess a granddaughter. Marvel does love doing shit like that. I just feel perhaps... If this was an element of this story, I maybe feel like I would have preferred to have seen it started in the last story, in the one shot. That would have been like a really cool thing if, you know, Doctor Strange was like, instead of the Johnny Blaze pages, if Doctor Strange was like, hey, I need Kushala. Hey, granddaughter, zap, zap, you're your grandma. You know what I mean? Like, I know it's a weird nitpick and it's a minor one. But it's something that's stuck in my craw, and I really do need to draw at least minor attention to it. It's sort of like the opposite of that 
you know, Johnny Blaze being in her story, and then later we're going to have Moon Knight and Captain America is going to show up, and all these cameos can be really overwhelming. But the other side of that is, I keep thinking about her friends from the diner. Were those characters that we had seen Kashala be friends with before that issue? And even if they are or not, now I keep thinking about they were expecting her to be at karaoke <laughs> that night. And like, that's just such a random and sad thing to throw into the narrative that now throughout the entire eight issues of Olivia's story, I'm sitting there thinking, but where are Kushala's friends that she made when she came to the year 2021? Do they remember her? Do they care? Are they going to become Olivia's friends now? Or were they nobody? And then why the hell were they even included in that narrative that now I'm thinking about Kushala made a bunch of random friends in modern times that she then had to abandon and was just sort of like, yeah, tell them I said bye. I definitely thought about that as well. And, you know, it's odd because it's a big to do about her having to go back to her own time. And we do this whole story in which she is there remotely, you know, possessing herself in becoming more and more present. And it ultimately ends with her coming back to the time that she just left. So, A, I like to think that she, you know, it was only like a week or two later. And she came right back and was like, guys, I'm really, really sorry. I had to do some uh, 19th century stuff, but I'm totally back. I was on vacay. Um, yeah, I was on vacay, you know. Visiting family. <laughs> I went to the original Coachella. <laughs> it was bad, guys. And, and that might be one of my nitpicks with the story is if we were sending her back to her own time for reasons, just to bring her back for reasons. Yeah, what was that? What was that? So the actual crux of the story sees something that I couldn't have ever predicted. We're talking a lot about Doom these days on the show, and I don't mean the end of times. I mean the Latvarian magician, sorcerer, techno emperor guy. And here we see a side of Doom that plays into something I just referenced recently, where, you know, Doom literally used the Purple Man to make himself Emperor of the World. Doom is nuts, you know what I mean? And he'll do anything to have power. And if you're going to tell me a story where something like the Wands of Watum are going to give Doom ultimate control of reality, you do need to put somebody dynamically powerful against him. And I think combining a Sorcerer Supreme with a Spirit of Vengeance. And you know what? I'm going to slot this in where it goes. Taking place during the time where Doctor Strange is dead and there is currently no Sorcerer Supreme. I think you have the potential for somebody who really could take on Doom like this. Ultimately, while it's not like Kushala is like spell, spell, bam, bam, I just beat the Doom man, she still can hold her own. And that's one of those things that, you know, when you're talking about one-upsmanship, Kevy has always permitted me my I can't help but cry when they appear in the MCU favorites. And I know she's a pushy space cop, but Carol Danvers is always going to be my pushy space cop. You know what I mean? <laughs> I'll always love her more than is appropriate. And I have no problem with the fact that she just showed up and OP'd at the end of Endgame. That's just fine with me because that is her power level and that is how seldom you kind of need to use her because of that. I think Kusha does represent somebody who in this story makes sense as someone who could stand up against an all-powerful doomy type and you know by the end of the story we do get the spell spell bam bam you know battle between them they're playing chess for the first seven issues but come issue eight it is an all-out fight 
I don't fully understand how magic works in the Marvel Universe. Sometimes when she would say a spell, it was very Doctor Strange and, like, literally in his font. But not every spellcaster I've seen in Marvel speaks spells in the Doctor Strange cadence and font. Why doesn't she have her own visual for magic? Or is it that she's specifically using Doctor Strange spells Or am I thinking too much about this? No, you're thinking a really gorgeous amount about this, and I couldn't commend you more. I think one of the most important things to this show, not that other shows don't go out of their way to praise every level of production, because every one of our ex-Twitter sphere, you know, brethren do an amazing job singing the praises of every line of defense in making these books. But this show does particularly harp on how important letters are. And letters are a lot about creating a voice for a character. It's like creating a sound in a font. And, you know, every fucking phoenix has a goddamn phoenix font. They never make a mistake. It is always a phoenix font. Same but I, font? oh, you know, it changes from it. It, it, it evolves. It same evolves. Look. But same look. Yeah. People okay. get phoenix colors and like you have a specific phoenix bubble and like it's a thing. And yeah. certain people's phoenix bubbles have certain shapes to them more frequently. Certain people's phoenix bubbles have more spacing around them. There's like some of them are on fire sometimes. Yeah. And what happens with magic because magic becomes so incidental to character work in the Marvel Universe, magic users, you know, play the song for 10 from the end of the Christmas special. And that's pretty much Doctor Strange doing magic all around his house, brushing his teeth, brushing his hair, pouring his coffee, bringing him his paper. It's very magic becomes an incidental way of life. So because of that, sometimes I think what happens is the complexity of using the font to tell the story, especially in an infinite comic where there's so many levels of production, I think it occasionally gets lost. I lament the fact that she, we don't see, you know, specific effects for the ancestral magic that she has. It's something that we've talked about in Strange Academy, ancestral magic, and like bringing your background into the greater magic sphere. I will say Doctor Strange and the Sorcerer's Supreme did a good job of establishing that there is kind of a lingua franca, which is the font that we see from Doctor Strange, that ultimately all Sorcerers Supreme do become familiar with and have at their disposal, regardless of the fact that they might be bringing their own stuff to the table. Okay, so it is like it is representing a type of magic that she was pulling from. Okay, because I recognize the, what is it, the bands of whatever? Bands of Sidorak! Yeah, Yeah! I know you love them. That's why I recognized it. A classic spell. They're just so, it's just like so that's one of the reasons that you know people say this is such a weird tangent but bear with me a minute there is an argument that is frequently made that it's important that if you want to see a change in comics you should support creator-owned comics and i agree every step of the way and i love that but there's something that i can't get from a universe that has two books in it <laughs> that that, yeah, that, I get you. That charms me on every level about a spell that I love getting a new dimension in a new way, in a new life, in a new light, in another book 20 years later. It's something that excites me about evolution. And here's the thing. 
I would in some ways compare it to something uh, even like from Doctor Who, Reverse the Polarity. Mm-hmm. It's this catch term that people will recognize. It's the universe's own repeated meme. And when you have something like the Marvel Universe, you can access not only your own repeated memes, but from like literally dozens and dozens of other characters and titles. And while there are times where it can be a little bit overwhelming, where all of a sudden Moon Knight shows up, well, this is a world where Moon Knight is out there. And it really is one of the things that I constantly am saying I love most about this world, this universe, and this franchise, that it is so full and diverse and stacked with characters who can make those appearances. So, like, it can throw you when you're not expecting it to see them mention the bands of Sidorak, but it's still wonderful when used nicely. And the cool thing about it, too, is, you know, this is a spell that recurs and that we're familiar with. It also mentions something that is tied to a completely other side of the Marvel Universe, Sidorak being what gives Juggernaut his power. And there's always that little touch of, like, don't forget, there's so much more going on here. And you can amble through this whole series that we just read i feel without knowing very much about the rest of the marvel universe absolutely it's more like easter eggs that if you're interested in what that means you can always dig deeper there's almost always more answers but you can still get through it without having to know all that which stephen king is a master of with his entire universe and the dark tower and, you know, Kevo, it's so interesting that you bring up Moon Knight, but not per se Black Knight, who that was Sir Percy, man. That's I the... was going to ask, but he was being such a little bitch in the last <laughs> arc that I read that I was like, I don't even want to know if it's Sir Percy. So ultimately, one of the things that this story does is it takes to some really complicated emotional places for the characters and raises the stakes on the battleground over and over and over. You think it's possibly just that, oh, he's going to get his hands on a magical thing. And then you think it's, oh, he might just extinguish the demon riders. And then it just keeps building to where they're referencing the events of Hickman's Secret Wars. That's ridiculously big. You know what I mean? Like, and it's not like a minor reference and it doesn't feel unearned, but this does in some ways feel like a very big name in an industry who loves an industry coming into that industry and being like, hey, can I play with some cool toys? And oh, I love Secret Wars. Let me mention it. And I have no problems with that because whatever brings you to your fandom is awesome. I'm more impressed that Marvel let that reference go through because it does in many ways for me elevate the stakes. And I give him credit too because I feel like this is a doom coming off of Secret Wars. This is a, and he mentions like I've been a god. I've had ultimate power before. Like of course that's going to be a driving motivator for him. And what he's attempting to do here is reclaim that kind of power. So it's not just a reference. It is an entire character drive. I do have to ask though, from an alternate perspective, especially because he just came off such a bigger story with far more far-reaching consequences than this one. Does that diminish this story, or at least his involvement in it, specifically him, not even like it could have been someone else, but I really feel like it 
kind of devalues both this story and that story to have him be back on his same shit immediately. Maybe it's because I've read too many things that have Doctor Doom as a villain that aren't even fantastic. I've never read a fucking Fantastic Four issue in my life. (laughs) And I have read so many things where Doctor Doom is the villain and the villainy he is doing is trying to achieve power over everything in the universe and he fails again. But it feels like it cheapens Doctor Doom as a villain to me is it just me and because of my experience or does anyone else kind of have that vibe at all i feel like that makes a lot of sense i guess the other part of it for me is at this point maybe doom deserves that a little bit because he is always on his same bullshit and it does always go the same way and it takes a really doom centered story to mix it up and give him more dimensions and it kind of underlines his repeated character tropes before hopefully fingers crossed pushing the character into a new direction soon right and speaking of pushing characters into new directions we mentioned that (laughs) kushala enters another being but we've yet to mention the name olivia obtera which is actually the main character of this story. And it's important to realize that because the stakes feel so great at all times, it's easy to forget how much of this story is about Olivia and her daughter and just how much of the story kind of hinges on Liam and Liam's humanity as the chaos element that Doom can't control. I have mixed feelings on Liam as a plot device in this story. Fair. I it, but like they're very complicated and I'm still examining exactly how I feel about them because as as it was becoming clear he was going to be instrumental in helping Olivia and stopping Doom, I was like, "Ugh, a white guy who's in love with her clearly and is sad about a kid." is going to be the thing that tips the uh, turns the tides instead of Olivia standing up for herself. And then he turned out to be a robot. So I'm <laughs> like, all right. So it's kind of like instead that this literal object overcame its programming because of love for Olivia to help her. All right. That makes it a different thing. A lot of how I feel about what I just read will depend on where the story goes next because these comics are ongoing. Will we see Liam again? I imagine we'll see Olivia again. But is he now a character in her story or is he just going to swan off? That will also change how I feel about what that character went through and what he represents. And I'm very excited to see more of sort of the general exploration of the mythos that was introduced as well. One of the things that I found spectacular about this story was the introduction of the owl. And the way the owl changed the way we examined the mythos, they literally were like, these are not our spirit. When they, you know, we're not seeing the owl. When they were seeing Judeo-Christian ideas, they were like, these are not our people. What's happening here? And the sort of depth that adds to the story, a recognition of established patterns that exist and an ability to still see your own culture as a reflection is a necessary part of what makes this story work. And again, it goes back to what I was saying about like the magical languages and all that. 
this is a really clear establishment of like everybody brings their background magic and their ancestral magic to the table. And there are certain places where you would expect to see it, but it will always also be interacting with other ancestral magics and other ways of viewing things. And I thought it was great that they knew what to expect from, you know, the, the land of the dead. And then also were just kind of a wrench was thrown in and they had to experience a different form of it while recognizing that it's all sort of part of the same sphere of influence. And I like that it was a combination of a few different mythos, that it was the River Styx, but it was Sir Percy as the ferryman and talking about the nine circles, like combining several different uh, legendary concepts rather than just straight up having it be one different thing. And of course, kind of incorrectly bringing the Kabbalah into it, but I'm not going to get into that too much. I would be interested to know who of native descent was involved in the storying of this is taboo partially yes okay yeah that's on, good to know it's a relief on his grandmother's side good for him. and you know it's just of note that while this was coming out phoenix song echo you got it thank you because i get it wrong a lot we all do of note it is uh, it's really hard to say that book's title well because um, there was another one that was i mean there's phoenix uh, song. song yeah there was, song yeah yes which was not phoenix song it was just end song so i'm always tempted to put it on the echo So Phoenix Song Echo also sees a story where Echo, a native woman, is traveling her timeline to see her family with the help of another native guide to stop the erasure of her family's legacy so that her mystical destiny doesn't get erased. So there are some interesting parallels here, whereas that book faces the adversary, this book faces Doctor Doom, whereas that book sees an edition of Forge, this book saw an edition of Moon night it's pretty interesting i think it's great i think that on top of everything else that is going on in this country right now something that is very important is to remember its full history and the fact that there are so many books in marvel coming out right now that are voicing the importance of celebrating you know history and culture i think that's fantastic and i think that both these books have the common theme of you cannot erase us our lineage is strong it is powerful and it means something is really important and it's something that i identify with on a personal level as a gay man we Mm -hmm. have very similar vibes in our own culture and history and attempted erasures that we fought back against absolutely and i think that this book really is a celebration of what makes a character and a culture unique. And that's one of the things that I love about Kushala as a character. As much as I feel we may have done a disservice to Olivia by not talking about her more, this still really is Kushala's story. And that is at the heart of what's happening here. She is her family and her family is her legacy. And I love that that's how it translates. And that's the thing, too. As we were talking throughout this episode, when I would say Kushala, there were definitely times where I was referring to both the both Kushala and Olivia, who worked so closely in tandem throughout the bulk of this story. And there's something really beautiful and powerful in that, the idea of merging with your ancestors and carrying them with you and their power being your power so you know i spoke the name kushala as the figurehead that was both of them but you know i in many ways she took up her grandmother's name and lineage 
Now, if I have a curiosity, it's about the future of the character. I am personally sort of particularly unsure if our next Kushala adventure is going to be in her own Kushala body or if she's going to be like Kushala renting some cousins again. Yeah, I I'm wasn't just... sure if that was a Kushala body at the end or just like a projection and she's like still tied to Olivia or not. Like the way at the end of Greece when everybody kills themselves and so they see the ghost. <laughs> fly into the sky no it's just danny and sandy that are dead everyone else is still alive it's fine oh that's nice i like that stalker channing she's an excellent first lady she is the best first lady so my question to you guys is if we're not sure if she's going to be in her own body sharing a body doesn't really matter but what do you guys hope to see from this character she has sacrificed the idea that she needs to be angry and now she exists in a protector role which i think is really important with making her spirit writer instead of demon writer and why that change had to exist how do you guys where do you guys see kushan going in the future um i would be we're in a weird place with dr strange stuff right now it is now known that the sorcerer supreme of earth for a while is going to be clea who may be doing double duty i guess as also sorcerer supreme of the dark dimension maybe not my favorite choice for how that to resolve especially with some other really compelling characters in the mix but i would be very interested to see kushala interacting with the loss of dr strange and i think the inevitable return of dr strange I would also be so happy to see her at Strange Academy. What a great pick. My more flippant answer is I would like to see her go to karaoke. I want to see <laughs> her rendition of Eye of the Tiger that she seems to think is the only song worth singing on a more you know genuine note. I really would like to see more from Olivia specifically. I feel like Kushala is now established as this heroic lineage figure in her family and we can i feel almost guaranteed to get more stories of kushala at different points in her timeline perhaps even helping different eras of her family but we spent so much time developing and getting to know olivia and filling out her story and so now i want to see more uh of her and see more of what she has to say. I feel like we put all that work into this character specifically. So I would love to see more from her. 